Our second lesson this morning is from the Gospel of Mark. It's printed for you in your liturgy here. Um, I'll tell you in advance, uh, if you're not familiar with this passage, that uh, it's a difficult one to get through. Um, And at the end, uh, as is our liturgical custom, you'll be invited when I say this is the word of the Lord, to say thanks be to God, and you'll wonder if you can say thanks be to God to this reading. I know that one of the things I'll be saying in my mind, and maybe even out loud, right after I say thanks be to God, is I'll be echoing that lovely communion song, uh, Jesus, give us hope again. King Herod heard of it. Now what did he heard of? He heard of Jesus' uh, great and mighty teaching and deeds. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason those powers are at work in him. But others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John whom I beheaded... He's been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife, and Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give you even half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? She replied, the head, John the Baptist. Immediately she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths, And for the guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went in, beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about it, they came, took his body, and laid it in a tomb. Jesus, give us hope again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Open our ears, O Lord, and may your Holy Spirit take what's before us this morning. This piece of Mark's telling of the good news of Jesus Christ. And may we learn from it what it is that we need to learn this morning. 
about opposition to the coming of your kingdom, about how we are to stand for your coming kingdom in the face of opposition. May your Holy Spirit be the one who teaches us in Christ's name. Amen. In the Gospel of Mark, we first meet John the Baptist at the beginning in chapter 1. He's a prophet in the mold of Old Testament prophets. He's gifted and inspired by God to courageously imagine that the status quo in the world is not what God wants. And like the Old Testament prophets before him, he will, with that prophetic imagination, with that vision, call everyone to repentance. He will especially put the powerful on notice that their opposition to God's movement in the world will be met by God's judgment. And then also, like the Old Testament prophets, John is opposed by the powerful and the wealthy personified in Herod. Mark tells us that John was arrested for speaking out against Herod. Now there were lots of Herods and it's hard to keep them sorted, but the Herod of this narrative is the one who ruled over Galilee on behalf of and at the pleasure of the Roman emperor. This Herod was from a royal Jewish family, the son of Herod the Great. Now that Herod, Herod the Great, was the Roman appointed king of Judea when Jesus was born. He's the one, remember, who tried to have Jesus killed when he was a baby. Now all of the Herods who ruled over the Jewish people took a measure of pride in ruling as Jews which explains why John opposed Herod's marriage to Herodias, because he opposed it on the basis that it violated the Old Testament law. Now, what really irked Herod and Herodias, perhaps, and what really got John in trouble with them, wasn't simply that John was opposing an immoral act, he was more importantly and more explosively, explosively calling into question the legitimacy of Herod as a Jewish ruler, as a Jewish ruler over God's people. And so also like the Old Testament prophets, John is not simply opposed. John is stopped by those who have the power to stop him. And then one, one thinks here, of the passages so common to the prophets of the Old Testament, like this one from the prophet Micah. Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. It is in the power of their hand. In other words, they use power the way they want to, any way that they want to, because they can. That's really what this awful vignette is all about. This, this is about abuse of power. Now, don't get me wrong. There's plenty to be against in this story. 
there is sexual manipulation, sexual objectification, sexual exploitation, murderous opposition of the truth. There's plenty to be against in this narrative. But at its core, this narrative exposes what it looks like when power is not under the influence of self-giving love, what it looks like when people can do whatever they want simply because it is in their grasp, it is their, in their hand to do it. The motivations, they're there, but they're secondary. In this instance, the motivation to save face, to shore up his position, silence, opposition, so forth and so on. This story is like the stories we hear today when we turn on the news. This story is like the story that our grandparents and their grandparents heard when they heard what was going on in the world around them. It is a story that is not going to go away easily. And it is a story that can make you feel hopeless. I was so, I was so grateful that somehow... You know, I wish I could say, yeah, and I talked to Davin this week, and I said, why don't you do that song, Jesus Give Us Hope Again? No, no, that was the Holy Spirit that put all that together. But what an appropriate song for this morning, and at communion, and before this homily, and before this reading. Jesus, give us hope again. Because when you hear a story like the one before us today in the Gospel of Mark, and when you, when you hear stories like it on the news the first thing you got to say to yourself is, Jesus, give us hope again, give me hope again, because that sounds like a hopeless story. Mark did not tell us this story to leave us hopeless. You know, this is part of Mark's gospel. Good news. He did not tell us this story to leave us hopeless, and he did not tell us this story in this long format to leave us hopeless. It's a long story for Mark. Mark's quick. Now, this story is not quick. <laughs> he tells it long, and he tells it in a way that's easy to remember for a reason. He tells us this story to remind us how and why we're supposed to bear witness to God's kingdom. Now, there's a lot that one can say about how we're to bear witness to God's kingdom. But at the heart, and really, I mean, that's what we're trying to do each week is, is figure out how to bear witness to God's kingdom. Um, but at the heart of bearing witness to God's kingdom, sort of the, the quintessential aspect of it, is a call to organize our lives so that we can be in solidarity with the powerless in tangible and meaningful ways. When Jesus talks in Matthew 25 about the great judgment on humankind that will accompany the transformation of this world into the world to come, this is what Jesus says about those lives which have been aligned with the coming of his kingdom. This is what Jesus says. Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. 
I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. What is remarkable about this list is that what all these people have in common is that they lack power and they are easily taken advantage of. Note well the mention of prisoners. The mention of prisoners, what really got my attention about this passage and linked it to this homily was that You know, the mention of prisoners, that group of people really underlines that the common denominator here is not anything other than a lack of power that in turn makes these groups vulnerable. Because prisoners are the supreme example of those who have no power. And that's all that commends them to this list. There's no mention of do they deserve to be in prison or not? Are they guilty or not? They're simply on this list because they are utterly and completely powerless. They are vulnerable. What does it look like in our context to stand with the powerless and the vulnerable? I think it will look different for different folks. Some will pick up a protest sign and demonstrate against laws and policies they have discerned thoughtfully and prayerfully oppose God's kingdom. Others will double up their involvement in volunteering for and supporting community service organizations like Breakthrough Urban Ministries that Grace is involved with. Some will work directly to influence public policy. But I think where it all starts, where it all starts is in our commitment to when we hear the news of the day, ask God to enable us to respond to that news with courage and hope. Jesus, give us hope again. To hear the news and ask God to give us, along with John the Baptist and along with Jesus, the prophetic imagination and the courage to proclaim that the rulers of this world will answer to God and to proclaim that God's kingdom has come upon us and has power now to change circumstances and then to live by God's spirit in a way that aligns with God's kingdom. It starts in our mundane, everyday experiences with people. Are we attuned to be sensitive to and come to the support of people who are vulnerable to power? Are we apt to use what power we have in a way that lifts up the people who are under us? This is the sort of thing we need to be asking the Holy Spirit to enable us to do.
one thinks of the exhortation of Paul to the Galatians here where he says, let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. It's King James Version morning for me. Micah quote was from King James. Galatians quote was from King James. I don't know what got into me. I just like, I like the way this sounds. Poetic and anyway. Let us not be weary in well-doing for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And we faint not because we know where God's story is headed. Mark's audience knew where God's story was headed. Remember that the narrative account of John's murder, along with the rest of Mark's gospel, comes to the church after Jesus has risen from the dead. And by the time Mark's gospel is written, Herod and Herodias have been, in great poetic irony, they have been exiled to Caligula, I mean to to Caligula, they've been exiled to Gaul by the Roman emperor Caligula. Why? Fittingly, because they found themselves on the wrong end of a power play. So there could have been a feeling among Mark's audience when they heard this story. It could have been the feeling right away that in spite of the fact that Herod struck John down, that Jesus had risen from the dead, and that his kingdom, the one John announced, the kingdom of God is an unstoppable force that opposes the Herods of this world and stands in judgment over them. On the one hand, an unstoppable force, but on the other, a force routinely resisted. Mark's readers would have also not missed the point that until this world becomes the world to come, the kingdom of God will be scorned and opposed by the kingdoms of this world, and that when the church, as Jesus' representative, does its work of bearing witness to the kingdom of God in this world, that we can expect to be in various measures, by various means, persecuted. This narrative of John's martyrdom, wow, it's a lot to ponder. It's a lot to be sobered by, but there's a lot to hope for and a lot to be energized by. It gives us a realistic view of what it looks like to follow Jesus in this world. We will suffer, we have hope. Sometimes voices like John's will be silenced temporarily. Jesus is raised from the dead. John will be too. John's voice continues to speak through the church for which Christ died And for which Christ is raised. It's fitting that this death dealing feast of debauchery. That Mark simply refers to as Herod's birthday party. That that death dealing feast comes right before the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. 
in Mark's gospel. I don't think that's by accident. The feeding of the masses is a life-giving feast for a new humanity where human power will forevermore take the shape of Jesus' cruciform life. That is our dinner party. That is our feast. Faint not and keep that feast, my sisters and brothers, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.